Hey everyone, thanks for being here today. My name is Hannah and I'm one of the pastors here at New Hope. When I was in college at George Fox University, the Residence Life Department thought it would be a great idea if they gathered up the 60 or so in training RAs and sent them out to the wilderness for seven days. They divided us up into groups of 10, loaded us in vans and sent us over to the Three Sisters Wilderness in Central Oregon. It was actually a really great idea. I loved it. I had a great time. It was an awesome like, leadership development opportunity, some training for our RA experience. And one aspect of our training was this thing called leaders of the day. So every day, every morning, a different two people in our group were selected as the leaders of the day. They were responsible for carrying the map, for knowing where we were going, having the compass, checking in with the group, water breaks, all that stuff to make sure that we got to our campsite that night before nightfall. So when it was my turn for leader of the day, I was feeling pretty confident. I grew up backpacking, grew up being outside, and I'm pretty spatially oriented. So I thought like, oh yeah, I got this. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be good. We were doing all right, my co-leader and I, until it was starting to get about dinner time, and we realized we are not near camp. Somewhere we had lost our way. And so we grabbed our map. I have this vivid memory of just getting down in the dirt, looking for our place on the trail, trying to orient the map to where we were supposed to be going and then making a decision. Okay, yeah, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna make this last, last ditch effort. We're gonna go this way, take our tired team down this last trail. This is, this is the right way. And then we found ourselves on the edge of a cliff, literally. <laughs> so clearly it was not the right way, but luckily every group had an actual wilderness guide with it. So we kind of tapped out and said, all right, we need help. Wilderness guide, come to our rescue. And he oriented our map and we found our way to camp that night. Have any of you had that experience of thinking you knew where you were and where you were headed and then only to find out you were totally lost? Am I alone in that? The last uh, couple of weeks, we've been looking at the story of Joseph. We've spent the last few weeks following this story of, of a young, immature boy and kind of traced his development through all of his like, unwelcome circumstances into becoming this more mature man through this decade of transformation. We've watched him anchor his hope in the presence of God, whether he was in the pit that his brothers threw him into, whether he was in the prisons or whether he was in the palace of Pharaoh. In all of those spaces, he anchored his hope to the presence of God. We watched him overcome temptation, trust in God's calling, learn how to wait on God. And last week, we watched him live out God's heart for reconciliation as his brothers came back to Egypt and sought that, that reconciliation and forgiveness with him. The teaching series that we're in is called You'll Get Through This. And we've been looking at how did Joseph get through the, the highs and the really low lows of his life? So today I want us to kind of look at Joseph as our wilderness guide, like in my RA training. No matter what life threw at him, Joseph oriented his map in light of God's good story. And he trusted God with his own unfolding story. So turn in your Bibles or scroll in your Bibles with me to Genesis 50, verse 12. 
But before we jump in to this part, this part of the story we're going to look at today, we have to backtrack just a little bit. So last week, Mike walked us through Joseph's brothers coming to Egypt, seeking refuge from the famine and Joseph extending that forgiveness and reconciliation with them and providing for them and, and his father to come and to settle in the land of Egypt. So since they, they went and, go, went and got uh, Joseph's father, Jacob, brought him back, brought their people, they have been settled in the land for 17 years. So it's been a 17 year time period from last week when Mike, when Mike preached to this week in the passage that we're looking at today. In Genesis 50, uh, verse 12, that's where the story picks up. They've settled in the land. Jo Joseph's father, Jacob, has died, but he asked to be buried not in Egypt, but in the land of his ancestors back in Canaan. So they're just on their way back from burying his father. All right, let's jump in. So Jacob's sons did as he commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Okay, so there's lots of interesting stuff going on in this passage. I was a little like, okay, where do I start? What are we gonna focus on here today? But what I wanna start with is Jacob's burial. Why did he insist on being buried in Canaan and not in the land of Egypt that they had settled in. So when Joseph's brothers came to Egypt for the first time, looking for refuge from the famine that was going on in the land, they came without their father, Jacob. And after they had you know, received kindness from Joseph and given permission to settle in the land, they went back to tell Jacob, hey, your son's alive, we're good, we're gonna be taken care of. As you can imagine, Jacob was probably stoked, surprised, shocked, all of the things, but he packed up his bags, got their family and all their people, and they started to make the trek over to Egypt. But as they were departing, Jacob stopped and, and made a sacrifice to God and worshiped. And that night on the journey, God appeared to Jacob. And this is what God said. I am God. The God of your father, he said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. So notice the promises that God, God makes. I will make you into a great nation. I will go with you. I will bring you back. 
what God is doing here is he's continuing the promise that he made to Jacob's ancestor, Abraham, that God would make his offspring a great people and that he would give them a land to settle in forever, to be at peace. So God is reminding Jacob that, hey, you're part of a bigger, a good story. And that him going to Egypt isn't the end of that story and it's not the end of God's faithfulness. We also see God telling Jacob to not be afraid. This command, do not be afraid, in the New, uh, New International Version, the NIV version of the Bible, it occurs over 80 times in the scriptures. I think God knows that we are a fearful people and we need that reassurance that God is with us. Don't be afraid. We're part of a good story. At that critical moment of decision where Jacob leaves his, his, the land of his ancestors and goes to settle in Egypt, God reassures him, don't be afraid. You're part of a good story and you can trust me with yours. This promise of God's unfolding story completely oriented Jacob's life. It was like his map. It was how Jacob made sense of his story in light of God's story. And he trusted that God was leading the way. And as he was about to die, Jacob handed off his map to Joseph. He told Joseph of this God encounter that he had had, saying that the promise is not over, the story is not over, God is still going to be faithful to us. So all of that gives us a little bit more backstory for the passage that we read about today with Joseph's brothers in Genesis 50. We see how God oriented Jacob to God's story, how Jacob oriented Joseph to God's story, and then how Joseph with his brothers who were just tangled up in their own story of fear and what if, how J Joseph oriented his brothers to God's story too. In essence, Joseph said to them, don't be afraid, God is writing a good story and we can trust him with ours. So what did God give us to make sense of our life, our experience here on earth? A book of rules, an algorithm like on Facebook. God gave us a story, a book of stories actually, with characters and settings and plots and drama and beginning, middles and ends. God wired us to be story people. We use stories to navigate our life the same way that we use maps to navigate the wild. Stories are vital to our flourishing as people individually and as communities. God's good, good story shaped the life of Joseph and it's meant to shape our lives too. So how can we practice being oriented toward God's good story? What does that look like? How do we live that out in a daily way? Well, I'm so glad you asked. I love to, to be practical, so let's jump right into that. First, we have to recognize that there are other stories competing for our attention, just like the brothers that we saw in Genesis 50. There's these other stories that go on that, that kind of can cloud out God's good story. So part of the work of orienting our lives to, God good, to God's good story is to recognize our false narratives, to recognize our false stories. 
We all listen to stories that aren't true. There are stories we have about God, about ourselves, about others that we've picked up along the way that need healing. It had been 17 years, remember, since Joseph and his brothers had had this reconciliation. And yet 17 years later, they're still being driven by this story of, of fear and what if around their relationship with Joseph. In Genesis 50, verse 15, when, Joseph saw, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrong that we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. And when their message came to, the, came to him, Joseph wept. Brene Brown is a researcher, a research professor at the University of Houston. She's a New York Times bestselling author, and she has one of the most watched TED Talks of all time called The Power of Vulnerability. And her work around storytelling and meaning making has been so transformative for me in my life. She writes this, our brains are wired to help us survive. When the brain senses danger or stress, it craves a story that will help make sense of the situation. Who is against us? Who is on our side? Who is dangerous? Who might hurt us? Most of us make up stories that exaggerate our fears and anxieties. Our brains love those stories and they chemically reward us with a sense of calm for having a complete story, even if the story isn't accurate. So I love this language of making up stories. I use it all the time. You can ask my housemate. It's super helpful in just like recognizing I'm kind of going down a wrong path in my head and then takes the judgment and the shame out of it and just, oh, I'm making up the story that if this sermon doesn't go, go well, I'm a bad pastor. Oh, I'm making up the story that if I lose 10 pounds, I'll be more lovable. Oh, I'm making up the story that my friend or my partner doesn't care about me. Oh, I'm making up the, the story that if I follow all the rules, I won't be hurt. Oh, I'm making up the story that whatever. You can fill in the blank with your own story, I'm sure, today. Is this not exactly what the brothers are doing in Genesis 50? They don't have all the information. They're freaked out. They're scared for their survival and they make up stories to fill in the gaps. And then they use that story to try and manipulate their brother to stay safe and in control. Is anyone else just like a little bit guilty of that sometimes? Brene goes on to say this, when we learn how to get curious and reality check the stories we make up, we can increase our resilience and reset faster after failures, setbacks, and disappointments. So this is like getting out the map, right? This reality checking our stories. But in order to reality check our stories, we first have to recognize them, right? We first have to, to recognize that we're headed down a wrong way. So this is where our body comes in, comes in clutch, all right? 
You know that feeling when your heart starts beating a little faster or your face gets red or your mind starts racing or maybe you just kind of are overwhelmed with this compulsion to, to binge watch TV or, or have another beer or whatever it is, work more, work out more, all of these things that we do to kind of self-soothe. That's, that's the good stuff right there. That's where we have to start and get curious right there. Our bodies are telling us something. There's a story buried in that reaction. So this happened actually just a couple of weeks ago um, in one of my meetings with our pastors, John and Mike. We had to make a decision about something and the more we got into it, I started to notice this shift in my body. I noticed my blood started pumping my chest started feeling hot, my heart started beating faster. And because I've built trust with these guys, when Mike asked me, yeah, Hannah, what do you think about this? I was like, well, I don't think I have a lot of good thoughts about this, but I can tell I'm having a lot of feelings about this. And we actually took some time right there in the meeting to kind of process through and identify what are some of the stories, both internally and externally, at play for me and then for John and for Mike too, surrounding the issue that we were trying to make a decision about. And then when all that stuff, all those stories were on the table, we could see a bit more clearly what was going on and the direction that we needed to go that was more truly aligned with our vision and our values. Joseph's brothers were caught up in their reactions and their false stories, weren't they? And Joseph could see it. And the scriptures say that he wept over it. I guarantee that each of us right now today are believing some kind of story that isn't fully true. The question is, will we let that story lead us to manipulation and control? Or will we recognize our false stories so we can begin to see what's true? And then that takes us to our next step. When we recognize that we're heading the wrong way, that we're walking toward a cliff like I was in my RA training, we can stop and change direction. We can turn from our fear-based stories and reorient to God's good story. Reorient to God's good story. When I was in seminary, one of my professors had us do this semester-long assignment called a rule of life. So we spent the whole semester identifying these daily, weekly, monthly, even yearly rhythms and practices that would help us stay oriented to God's good story, to what God says about us and what God says about the world and the story that God's writing. For those of you who have taken our emotionally healthy spirituality class here at New Hope, you know what I'm talking about. We talk about rules, rule of life in that class. I update my rule of life as I grow and change and as seasons change. But whenever I start to get a little wonky or just kind of feel lost, I check in with my rule of life. When was the last time I shared my heart with a friend? When was the last time I looked for beauty? Did I find beauty today? And when was the last time I, I, I just sat in God's presence and kind of oriented my heart towards God? Did I get outside and, and move my body this week? Those are the kinds of things that are on my rule of life. 
We see these rhythms in the scriptures too and in this story of Joseph. Jacob had a rhythm of sacrifice and worship that made room, remember, for, for God to reorient him to, to reorient Jacob to God's story. Joseph reoriented his life to God's story in the prisons of Pharaoh by practicing the presence of God and trusting that God was with him. Jesus regularly went into a solitary place to reorient to God's story in the midst of so many other voices and, and demands of the ministry that he was a part of. And by God's grace, even Joseph's brothers were reoriented to God's story through Joseph's kindness and reassurance. So I will, I'll be honest with you, crafting a rule of life is a bit of an endeavor. It takes some time. Like I said, we worked on it all semester. But I do encourage you to begin that journey. It's a really, really valuable tool for, for reorienting our lives to God's good story. You'll find a link in the comments and we'll post on Facebook later too. A resource from Bridgetown Church here in Portland. They've, they've developed a workbook to help people kind of walk through the process of developing their own rule of life. So that's a super helpful tool. But what I want to challenge you with today isn't necessarily the whole rule of life, but what I think is the most essential and kind of imperative right now tools from the rule of life. And it's something that I call the must do's. The must-dos. What are the one or two must-do daily practices that keep you oriented to who you are and God's good story? What are the one or two must-do daily practices that keep you oriented to who you are and God's good story? So think of these must-dos like daily map checks. Just an opportunity for you to quickly check, make sure you're kind of heading the right way. These should not be long, burdensome things. For example, some of my must-dos are, in the past it was when I got into my car in the morning or when I was driving from somewhere to somewhere, I would just take a big deep breath. Just to remind myself, I'm okay, I am here, I can breathe, God's got me. Another one of my must-dos I mentioned earlier is to take 10 minutes every morning or at some point throughout the day and to, to make myself aware of God's presence, to practice God's presence, to turn my attention to God. These should not be hard things that take a lot of time. So what I want you to do is some point today, grab a little sticky note, write down one or two things on there that you want to try and practice this week one or two of your must-dos. It's probably honestly something you're already doing, but you just want to identify that. Yep, that's my map check-in moment of the day, making sure I'm oriented to God's story. I want you to take that sticky note, put it on the fridge, on your dashboard in your car, put it on your bathroom mirror, wherever you're going to kind of be reminded of that, of that process of reorienting to God's good story. All right, Hannah, so this is all great, right? But what do I do about the parts of my story that definitely aren't good? What do I do about the parts of my story that feel dark? And you're talking about this map. I don't even know where the map is or who has it. What about then? That's when we look at the story of Jesus or the story of Joseph. And we see that his story can be so powerful for ours. The story of Joseph urges us to believe 
that even in the bleakest chapters of our lives, we can trust God with our story. We can trust God with our story. Every good story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. But for most of our lives, we live in the middle. We live in this kind of posture of waiting, like John talked about a few weeks ago. We might have moments where we kind of, oh, I see the big picture, or, or maybe seasons where we feel a bit more resolve than other seasons, but generally, we're kind of in the middle. And it's that place of hope. The promise of God's good story is that our pain is not the end. God's story ends with resurrection and, re and redemption of all things made new, all things whole, all things home. The promise is that our pain is not the end. But in the meantime, we are in the middle and we link arms with one, with one another and we lean into faith, we lean into hope, we lean into love. On the other side of suffering, Joseph looks at his brothers who caused him so much pain. And he said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is being done now, the saving of many lives. Joseph is clear about this. You intended to harm me. He doesn't pull any punches. Joseph doesn't dismiss his suffering. God doesn't ask us to minimize our pain. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus despised the shame of the cross. We're not asked to, to glaze over, to gloss over our suffering. But both Joseph and Jesus, they trusted that their father would make their suffering matter. And both saw that God did. We can trust God with our story. So what part of your story hasn't found its way into God's redemptive hands? What grief or pain or heartache still kind of lurks in the shadows of confusion or bitterness or shame? What would it look like to let even just a little bit of God's light shine in on that space. Perhaps it's just holding it before God in prayer. Maybe it's talking to someone you trust. Maybe it's seeking help from someone who's been in that space on the journey before. Maybe it's finding a, su a support group or, or calling that counselor. The other day I was really feeling this just middle moment, right? I have hopes about the future and dreams and I have pains in my past that can still feel really tender sometimes. And as I was just in my living room, sitting on the couch, kind of dwelling in my middle moment, I was reminded of this song from, by Will Reagan. And the chorus of this song goes like this. It says, I give it all to you, God, trusting that you'll make something beautiful out of me found that song on Spotify and I literally played it for like an hour on repeat in my living room. But it was just a way for me to kind of soak in that hope of I give it all to you, God, trusting that you'll make
something beautiful out of me. And that's our work as we're, as we're in the middle, as we trust God with our story. God holds each of us and each part of our story with so much dignity and so much care. God sees our pain, knows our pain. And this blows my mind. In Christ, God actually became our pain. And in the resurrection, all of our sufferings, all of our sorrows, our experiences of death are raised to new life. That's the promise of resurrection. God will find room for all things in God's good story of redemption. We can trust that God will make it matter. God did that for Joseph, did that for Jesus. And we can trust that God will do that for me and for you. Don't be afraid. God is writing a, a good story and we can trust him with ours. At the Last Supper, the night that Jesus was betrayed, when his friends were all with him around the table, he shows us what the power of living in light of God's good story does. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus knew who he was and the good story that he was a part of. And it was because of that, that, that he could choose the courage to trust and to love, even in his most trying moments. That very night, two of his friends and his disciples, one was going to betray him and the other was going to be going to deny him. And you know what Jesus did? He knew his story and he was able to look at them with love and start to wash their feet. What kind of love is that? It's a love that knows its story. And that's a story that we get to practice and remember week after week through communion. On this very night, the same night that Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he took the bread and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Whenever you eat this, do so in remembrance of me. Remember the story. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. It's a sign of the new covenant. Whenever you drink this, remember me, remember the good story. So you can practice remembering the story through communion whenever you're ready.